The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the staff postgraduate seminar series for the School of English at Trinity College Dublin. My name is Maggie Masterson. I am one of the conveners of the series, along with Janice Detner and Orlith Darling, and you're very welcome today. The seminar series provides an important and supportive space for postgraduate students, faculty, and guests to present and discuss their current research. And today we are delighted to have a presentation by Dr. Brendan O'Connell, who will present the paper, Think of All the Differences, Mixed Marriages in 21st Century Adaptations of Chaucer. But before we begin, a bit of housekeeping. Uh, this term, the series is being hosted again by the Trinity Long Room Hub. We're very grateful to their um, for their assistance. And you can tweet us as we go along at TCD English, at TLR Hub, and at Seminars TCD 2020. If you tweet, please use the hashtag TCD English SPGS. Brendan will speak for around 40 minutes and there will be time for questions at the end. If you have a question, please type it into the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and I will relay as many questions as possible in the time allotted. If there are any technical issues during the seminar, we will attempt to remedy them as quickly as possible. And of course, we ask for your patience and understanding. And so without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Brendan O'Connell. Brendan is a lecturer in medieval literature here at the School of English in Trinity College. He has research interests in 14th and 15th century poetry, and particularly in the reception of Chaucer in early modern and contemporary literature. So, I'd like to welcome Brendan. Thank you, Maggie. At this time. <clears throat> thank you, Maggie. Um, that's great. Thank you all. Um, and thank you all very much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be giving uh, the, the first um, uh, of the, the, the seminars uh, in, in Hillary term. Um, and uh, in particular, looking over your um, uh, your wonderful program that you you've put together. I'm very uh, struck by the kind of great kind of diversity range and the kind of historical range uh, of the the topics that you're you're covering. Uh, everything from old English up to the the, the present day. Um, so thank you very much for asking me uh, along. I suppose I like to think of the uh, the talk that I'm giving today as as really being a kind of example of teaching-led research as opposed to research-led uh, teaching in that it derives or developed from my involvement in one of our, our fresher modules, uh, Cultures of Retelling, which is convened by our wonderful colleague, Rosie Lavin. Uh, and it's a module that really invites students to analyze adaptations and retellings and what the syllabus describes as the journeys texts make across cultures and time periods. And the module such as Cultures of Retelling really embodies many of the core values of a 21st century English curriculum, recognizing the importance of, of a long view of literary history, while also taking seriously the work of bringing into dialogue texts from very different places and cultures. As many of you may know, there has recently been an outcry about the decision of Leicester University to impose redundancies that have specifically targeted uh, the fields of English language and medieval literature, as well as a number of other uh, departments, I might add. 
Um, unhelpfully, that decision was certainly initially framed by management as part of their commitment to decolonizing the curriculum and focusing more on issues of gender, sexuality and race. And understandably, uh, this, this move led to an outraged response from thousands of academics working in these fields, pointing out not only that medieval studies has long engaged with just such, uh, just such concerns, uh, but that the principles of a decolonized curriculum are not actually furthered by axing staff and doing away with entire fields of study. Regrettably, uh, the uh, move also led to a, a tedious and predictable outcry from right-wing tabloids and racist trolls uh, that the university had been taken over by woke fascists and that even Chaucer, the father of, of English literature, uh, was being cancelled, to use the, the phrase that was actually unbelievably uh, used. And this brings me really to one of the central figures I, I want to, the central figure I suppose I want to talk about um, today, this, this guy here, uh, Geoffrey, Geoffrey Chaucer, um, and his identification, I suppose problematic identification, as the so-called father of English poetry or father of English literature as it's often, as it's often uh, put. I suppose the designation of Chaucer as a father remains attractive and useful in that it evokes the very enormous influence that Chaucer has had on literary history. But by the same token, the genealogical, genealogical model on which that is based is also obviously deeply problematic in the way that it frames literary tradition within potentially narrow nationalistic and linguistic boundaries. And yet, one of the most fascinating aspects of modern reception of Chaucer is its remarkable linguistic and cultural diversity. As the Global Chaucer's Project has shown, Chaucer's broad international cultural recognition is actually in many ways, ironically, or sorry, paradoxically, a kind of a, a product of colonialism because his work was taught on curricula throughout the, uh, the, the British Empire, and yet, as Michelle Warren has, has noted, the sheer range of literary responses to Chaucer in diverse languages and cultures is what Warren calls the homogenizing influence of imperialism. Certainly, the diverse structure and the multiple voices of the Canterbury Tales represents a model of literary tradition that can be seen as expansive and accretive, even within Anglophone culture, the observation uh, of a black British poet like Patience Agbabi uh, that Chaucer made me a poet, as she has said, raises very interesting questions about the legacy of the father of English poetry. In this paper, I want to reflect on the role of Chaucer as a literary father by bringing into focus the trope of the mixed marriage as deployed in Chaucer's Man of Law's Tale and in two uh, 20th century adaptations. I'm going to be looking uh, in particular at the 2003 BBC TV version and Patience Agbabi's own 2014 Telling Tales. Her version of this tale is called Joined Up uh, Writing. As we'll see, these mixed marriages raise important questions about English national identity that allow modern adapters to reflect on issues such as the legacy of colonialism racism and the treatment of asylum seekers, 
but also provide an opportunity for a writer such as Igbabi to raise questions about the nature of literary history, the place of black and minority voices within the literary legacy of the father of English literature, and indeed to reflect on the nature of adaptation itself, as I'll mention. Now, this image is a, an image that has actually been surprisingly useful to me uh, as I've been thinking through um, some of these ideas. Some of you may know this, uh, this, this image already, but in July 2020, the Smithsonian Magazine published a series of portraits by Drew Gardner, a British photographer, each of which recreated an image of a famous historical American with one of their living descendants. In this uh, image, which is one of the, the most kind of famous of these images, the one that garnered perhaps the most attention at the time, uh, Shannon Lanier, who is African-American, recreates Rembrandt Peale's portrait of his six-time great-grandfather, uh, the founding father and US president, Thomas Jefferson. Um, as, as many people will, will know better than I did before I saw this, this image. Um, Shannon Lanier is directly descended from Sally Hemings, a slave who bore a number of children to, to Jefferson. And the reason I suppose that I love this image and love this, the juxtaposition of these two uh, images is because really this is an example of an adaptation that forces us to really put side by side uh, our image of the father or a father of American democracy with a kind of biological truth about his status as Lanier's ancestor, forcing us to confront the ideal that's so intimately associated with Jefferson, that all men are created equal, with the reality that he fathered a number of children with one of his many slaves. I suppose in, in the same way, I, I want to suggest the adaptations that I'm going to talk about today invite us to reflect on the status of Chaucer as a foundational figure in the canon um, and encourage us or invite us to consider really challenging issues such as the representation of racial, of racial and religious differences in Chaucer's own work, the role of nationalism and imperialism in the consolidation of Chaucer's status in the literary canon and the challenges faced by writers and scholars from minority backgrounds in the field. Uh, of literary studies in the field, I suppose, of cultural production. So to say a little bit about the text that I want to talk about today, uh, Chaucer's Man of Law's Tale. I'll begin with a brief summary uh, because I don't expect that, that, that very many of you uh, will, will be terribly familiar with, with, this, um, with this text. In this uh, text, which is of course written in the, um, in the uh, the, the 14th century, we see the um, sixth century um, emperor's Christian daughter. She's the main character. And Constance is sent to marry the Muslim Sultan of Syria, who agrees to convert uh, to Christianity in order for the marriage to take place. His outraged mother, the, the Sultaness, 
at a kind of archetypal kind of red wedding uh, scene, slaughters everyone at the, the feast that welcomes uh, Constance, um, except Constance herself, who, who she has set adrift in a, in a rudderless boat uh, to drift uh, around the sea. After a very long uh, period at sea, Constance arrives in pagan Northumbria, and after various trials, she converts the locals and marries the local king, King Alla. His mother, um, again, uh, an outraged mother, uh, a, a kind of evil mother-in-law figure, uh, forges royal letters commanding that Constance and her son uh, with Alla be banished from the kingdom. Constance and her son drift in their boat back to, uh, well, through the Mediterranean for a, for a while, and then back after more adventures back to Rome. Eventually, Constance is reunited with her husband and their son uh, becomes the emperor. Now, you'll notice that I've illustrated this um, detail here, not with, um, not with any image of the, um, the, the tale, but actually with an image of a Mappa Mundi. Um, the, the tale, I think, is a tale that's emphatically about space. Uh, we see, I, I don't know if you can see my mouse uh, uh, tracing here, but in the medieval map, we have kind of Jerusalem in the center. We have Asia up in the top of the map, Europe uh, in, the, in the, the, the bottom left-hand corner and Africa over here in the right. So we have um, Constance leaving, um, leaving Rome, we're told, heading over towards Syria um, and then drifting back up through the Mediterranean, out through the Strait of Gibraltar and up to the coast of, of Nor Northumbria. The reason I show this map is because, like I say, this is a tale about defining space, uh, defining a Christian Europe in opposition to a Muslim world in the East, while in the far West, a very peripheral uh, Britain um, begins to define itself as a sovereign Christian European kingdom. While in the 20th century, the tale was one of Chaucer's least popular works because of its moralistic narrator, its passive heroine and intense hostility to non-Christians, in the post 9-11 era, fresh critical perspectives and particularly coming from post-colonial theory highlighted issues of religious and racial otherness, migration and imperialism, reminding us that this is a tale rooted in much older crusader narratives, a story about empire, yes, but above all, I think, an anxious story that turns to English, England's history before the Norman invasion to articulate some thoughts and perspectives on English national identity. With that in, in mind, I just want to um, turn to this quotation from Susan Nakeley. Um, as she has, has argued, the Man of Law's tale uses the British past to address two sets of contemporary national concerns, anxieties about the future of English institutions in crisis and questions about England's place in the world, given its insular pagan history, similarly limited vernacular language and claimed continental inheritances. The Man of Law ultimately presents an historical case for national sovereignty as the antidote to the, to the problems plaguing England, its language and its institutions of marriage, church and law. At the core of the Man of Law's reflection on national identity, however, is a story about mixed marriage. The mixed marriage is a defining trope in all versions of the tale, including Chaucer's sources and analogues and the 21st century adaptations I'll discuss later. 
there, these, this trope is, is handled very differently in all of these, uh, but in all versions, the arrival of a foreign woman and her marriage to a local ruler augurs profound cultural and religious change, which faces ferocious opposition. In Constance's first marriage, the match has disastrous consequences, but her second intercultural or interfaith relationship in pagan England leads to much more providential uh, outcome, leading to uh, the conversion of the king, uh, which then uh, sets in train a, a series of, of events uh, that are very connected with the uh, wider conversion of England. As we can see here, I suppose what I'm, I, I'm saying is, is not very surprising at all, which is that the kind of political affiliations at the heart of this kind of story are absolutely centered on the body of a woman and on her, the, her fate as a, a potential bride. And with this in mind, I want to look at a uh, quotation by Geraldine Heng, who has written persuasively uh, about this, um, this text. Heng argues as follows, Constance's nuptials with a symbolic local king pinpoint the moment of switching over, a moment that is contested by powerful local women who defend against the symbolic and material transmutation Constance enacts. And the nativity, uh, the birth of Constance's babe, makes visible with sentimental effectivity the efflorescence of a reconfigured and new local formation. So obviously a, a complicated uh, uh, sentence there and Heng is covering a lot of ground. Uh, I suppose I would highlight when she uses the phrase, phrase nativity of Constance's babe, uh, she is very much drawing a kind of religious association of the word nativity um, here. Uh, and, and I think she's rightly pointing to this reconfiguration of, of local identity. As she puts it, the story simplifies the linkages between impulses of the nation and impulses of empire and brings home, as it were, back to intimate locations of hearth and family, the dependence of one set of influences on the other. Now, when we look at, I think, Man of Law's Tale, we have to remember that it belongs to a very, very long and very complicated history of stories, stories about accused queens or calumniated queens, um, which has been extensively studied by Margaret Schlock and Nancy Black, uh, among uh, others. Just to briefly trace, trace through some of these uh, particular uh, stories. One of the more remote analogues is a romance called The King of Tars. And in this, notoriously, the uh, Christian heroine is married off to a dark-skinned uh, Muslim sultan. Um, she pretends to convert, but she doesn't really convert uh, to, to Islam. She, after their marriage, gives birth to a formless child who medievalists sometimes affectionately called the blob baby or the lump baby, that this kind of formless uh, child um, who only takes on true human form, a beautiful uh, human form when he is baptized, thereby kind of proving or settling this question of which of the two faiths of its, its parents is the true religion. On seeing the miracle, the father converts uh, to Christianity and his black and loathly skin, we are told, uh, turns white. 
as, as Cord Whitaker has argued, the tale actually offers a more nuanced take on the relationship between skin color and morality than this bald description implies. But we can readily see that in this version, the question of racial and religious difference are, is very much to the fore. In a text influenced by the King of Tars, the Chronicles of Nicholas Trevay, issues of race are less obviously foregrounded. Religious difference too takes on a different aspect in that this ta his tale uh, is set before the birth of the prophet Muhammad and therefore the Sultan is not Muslim. He's described insistently as Saracen, but he is not actually a Muslim. Jonathan Stavsky, looking at uh, Treve's tale, has argued that that text stakes an English claim to the Holy Land uh, through the, the figure of the, the boy Morris, the child of Constance and, and King Allah, who becomes emperor uh, after the emperor, Emperor Tiberius, uh, dies. Um, by contrast, the Man of Law's tale insists very anachronistically on the Muslim faith of the Sultan. Um, it, this is a, a tale that, in spite of the fact that it's set in the, the, the sixth century, insists on the Muslim faith of the Sultan and the, the, the Sultaness, and specifically pits Christianity against Islam. <laughs> now, the religious concern of the tale is arguably the, the aspect that has attracted the most attention um, in, in recent years, and in particular um, in the aftermath of 9-11. Um, so really, I suppose when I'm focusing on 21st century um, interpretations or adaptations of this tale, I am really thinking about this tale in a post 9-11 um, world. Tales' uh, apparent hostility towards Islam, however, was questioned in 2003 in an article written by Carolyn Dinshaw, very much in the aftermath of 9-11 and with the kind of looming context of the war on, on Iraq. And Dinshaw, Dinshaw's article fundamentally repositioned debate about the tale. Analyzing the motivations of the Muslim sultaness, she argued that the representation of the Sultaness is remarkable for its portrayal of her fierce devotion. The tale presents her religious conviction from the Saracen point of view. While Muslims are sometimes valued only because of their potential for conversion, the strength of the Sultaness intransigent in her faith marks Chaucer's interest in cultural difference. Now this quotation is very thought-provoking. It's also a little bit um, problematic because I think it, it portrays a kind of a sense that the portrayal of Islam in the Man of Law's Tale is more positive than it, than it really is. I mean, the Sultaness does show this kind of uh, deep-seated faith-driven uh, belief um, and, and strong political action, but she also slaughters uh, everyone. You know, it, it's, it's not a, a kind of um, particularly positive uh, view here. As we'll see, I think, the 21st century uh, began an era of radical rethinking of the Man of Law's Tale and Chaucer's implication in uh, an age-old conflict between Christianity and Islam. So with that in mind, I want to turn to uh, really uh, my first 21st century adaptation of The Man of Law's Tale, the BBC version that appeared in 2003, which is written by Olivia Hetreid uh, and directed by Julian Jarold. This appears really in the same year as Dinshaw's article, 2003, when the BBC aired a series of adaptations of selected uh, Canterbury tales, including The Man of Law's Tale, which I think was a surprise for a lot of people at the time, because it's like I say, it's not really 
the most popular of, of Chaucer's tales um, historically or had not been. The scriptwriter Olivia Hetrude, Hetrude sorry, uh, dealt very directly with the thorny legacy of the tale, arguing the man of law, and note she says the man of law as opposed to Chaucer, the man of law is unashamedly xenophobic in his assumption of Christian superiority over Islam. My version is not xenophobic, but it examines the conditions in which xenophobia flourishes. Hetreid's adaptation of the text is, is really quite brilliant in, in many, many respects. While initially, for example, it appears that she has cut out the, the, the kind of first act of the original medieval tale, so Constance's marriage to the Muslim Sultan, Hetreid brings in exactly these issues of ethnic and religious uh, conflict and ethnic and religious identity by making Constance, uh, uh, who is portrayed by uh, Nikki Amuka Bird, um, as a Nigerian refugee. And specifically, she represents uh, Constance as the daughter um, of a mixed marriage between a Muslim man and a Christian woman who, who have, as a result of this union, faced kind of violent attacks that ultimately leads uh, to um, Constance having to, to seek refuge uh, in England or to which she flees um, as, a, as a refugee. The trope of the mixed marriage is actually foregrounded in this adaptation at every turn. After arriving in England as a stowaway on a boat, Constance is taken in by a mixed race couple, posing as the cousin of the British uh, Nigerian wife of the pair, uh, who is called uh, Nikki. Soon after, Constance meets and falls in love with a, a man called Alan King, played by Andrew Lincoln here, who himself, we later learn, is the child of a white British father and an Iranian mother. The situation is further complicated when Terry, a white member of Constance's church in, in England, um, pursues her romantically and, and unsuccessfully. She is not uh, interested in him. And this culminates in a, um, attempted, an attempted rape. Uh, he attempts to, to rape her. This is thwarted by, by Nikki, at whose home she is staying. Um, and after that, uh, Terry kills uh, Nikki um, and frames Constance in this kind of active, kind of shame-filled kind of revenge. And actually, this is an episode that conflates a couple of the medieval Constance's more harrowing uh, misadventures. After a dramatic trial sees Constance acquitted, she is scheduled for deportation um, until Alan proposes to marry her. His mother, uh, outraged at the match, urges um, Alan to think of all the differences, as she puts it, and ultimately she conspires through forgery and deception to have Constance and her unborn child deported back to Nigeria. Alan pursues her, however, and the couple and their son Isaac uh, are happily reunited. It's a very interesting tale. It's a very, very interesting, very clever adaptation of um, author's text. It, it was widely praised by TV critics at the time and indeed by, uh, by the academic community, medievalists and scholars who looked at it. Um, Kathleen Coyne, Coyne Kelly pointed out that the, the BBC had, had delivered what she called an urgent post 9-11 parable that takes on immigration policy and religion uh, intolerance. Moreover, pointing to the change of the child's name from Morris in the original uh, to the biblical name Isaac, 
Susan Yeager has pointed out that the adaptation reminds us of the conflict between Islam and Christianity, as it recalls the son of Abraham, Isaac, and the relationship between, I suppose, the Abrahamic religions descended respectively from Isaac and Ishmael. So in this way, even the very name Isaac is, is sort of foregrounding issues of conflict, while also thinking back to the ideas of shared ancestry in a productive and, and generative way. I think the BBC adaptation of The Man of the Hostel can also fairly, even though it's a, a very good piece of television, can also be fairly critiqued as a kind of producing a, in some ways, a fantasy of multicultural Britain. Um, it does grapple with really important issues about uh, asylum, immigration and, and racism, but there are a few strange moments in it. For example, that the central villain, Alan's mother, um, is identified as, as an Iranian immigrant her, herself. Um, and indeed, at one point when Alan, um, played by Andrew Lincoln, openly accuses her of being racist, she kind of replies and says, well, of course I'm not, how, how could I be? Um, so so, so it, it doesn't necessarily um, get everything right in kind of adapting these, these issues. But the issue in which this adaptation has been most frequently critiqued, I suppose, is the way in which it treats the kind of institutional and structural questions around racism, around uh, asylum seeking uh, and, and refugee status. As uh, Kathleen Forney has argued here, the social ills are represented in the tale in this TV version, not as institutionally systemic, but as personal problems best solved by individual agency and the magically transformative power of romantic love. So it's really with this in mind that I want to, to turn to the last text that I want to, uh, to talk about today, um, which is uh, Telling Tales by Patience Igbabi and specifically Joined Up Writing, her version of the, the tale. <clears throat> Sorry. So Agbabi was born in London in 1965 to Nigerian uh, parents. Um, she has described herself as, as bisexual and bicultural and a, a kind of a nice, a, a kind of a nice phrase for thinking about the way she, she kind of represents um, her, her identity and particularly I think the idea of, of having a kind of bicultural identity uh, is something that, that feeds in very uh, nicely to the topic of, of today's, uh, today's talk. Telling Tales in, was published in 2014, and in essence, it's a, a kind of tale-by-tale -tale remix, as uh, she calls it, of the Canterbury Tales. So it takes each one of the Canterbury Pilgrims and each one of the Canterbury Tales, and it kind of updates and, and modifies them in different ways. So at the back of the book, she has um, a list of, of poets, um, and these poets, are all, they're all fictional uh, beings she has, has concocted and created to replace the tellers of the, the Canterbury Tales. And she imagines all of these poets uh, participating really in a poetry slam, which takes place on a Routemaster bus that's traveling from London to Canterbury. So kind of following the, the, the same route as Chaucer's original uh, 
each of the tales then kind of reframes or reimagines one of Chaucer's original uh, worlds in a, in a fresh and new way and kind of narrated uh, by one of these, um, these, these poets. The tale that I'm going to talk about uh, for the last few minutes of the, the uh, talk today is this tale joined up writing, which Agbabi has written about as a, a reworking that is indebted to both Chaucer's original tale and to the BBC version. She's very direct about saying she was kind of almost reading back through the BBC version and back through to, to Chaucer uh, in all of these different, um, different ways. I want to highlight really a couple of the major changes uh, that Agbabi makes when she is retelling Chaucer's Man of, of Law's tale. I mentioned previously that uh, in the BBC version, Constance is a Nigerian refugee. And Agbabi, who uh, herself is of Nigerian origin, her parents are, are Nigerian, um, kind of responds quite directly to this and decides that she doesn't want to represent Constance as Nigerian. So instead she decides to represent Constance as uh, Zimbabwean. Um, and indeed the poet who narrates the, 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 the tale is also um, Zimbabwean. Now, I think this is a really interesting choice by Agbabi because I think representing this character as being from Zimbabwe as, a, as opposed to Nigeria raises some very interesting questions. In the BBC version, as we saw, this focus on Constance as a Nigerian refugee um, whose parents were a kind of mixed marriage, a Muslim father and a Christian uh, mother, really helped uh, that adaptation to foreground issues of, of religious uh, conflict, the conflict between Christianity and, and Islam. But I think because Zimbabwe does not have the same kind of uh, quite even split or equal split between Christianity and, and, and Islam, I think really Agbabi's focus in this tale is more on issues of, of race and issues of really the legacy of, of British colonialism. One of the, the interesting factors around the representation of Constance uh, in the tale, the tale is narrated by the racist mother-in-law uh, of, of Constance, and she repeatedly refers to her only as African, as colored at one point. And the fact that she refers to as, her as colored, I think in a, a Zimbabwean context, raises all sorts of interesting questions about Constance's ethnic and racial identity that we might come back to. In the tale, uh, her husband, Constance's husband, Ollie Oliver, uh, is a successful writer. He's a writer of, of crime novels. And perhaps the most interesting uh, transformation that Agbabi chooses to make is to have the narrative told from the perspective, not of an omniscient narrator, but from the perspective of Constance's racist uh, English mother-in-law. So there's an awful lot going on in this, uh, this tale and a lot of different approaches that I think we might um, take. But I want to highlight in the, in the few minutes that I have left, uh, really what Agbabi does in Joined Up Writing as she thinks through these questions of literary tradition um, and the nature of literary tradition and her response um, to Chaucer. So I really think is very important um, piece of context for understanding this. The Man of Law's tale is one in which Chaucer had reflected with um, 
some urgency and arguably some anxiety on how he was going to forge a place for himself as a writer. So as a poet writing in, remember uh, what was a peripheral language uh, in the 14th century. I mean, English was, was a peripheral literary language, even in England, uh, where, where many writers uh, and many of the dominant works of, of literature were produced in, in Latin and in, in French. So he's a writer writing in a peripheral language in a marginal country and on the fringes of, of Europe in a literary tradition that is dominated by, by the classics, by the Latin classics, and by, I suppose, the, the, um, the, the kind of dominant vernacular, European vernaculars uh, of, of France and Italy. So things like the Romance of the Rose or Dante's um, Commedia. And in the introduction to The Man of Law's Tale, he dramatizes this quandary by having the narrator, the man of law, refer to Chaucer's own rather frenetic attempts to adapt and translate stories from other cultures. So he, he directly addresses this question of, of a writer looking to other cultures, other, other languages, uh, to, to look for material for his own writing and to forge his place in, his, in a literary tradition. At one uh, key moment, the man of law, so the narrator of the tale, says the following. He says, look, I don't know if I can come up with a new story or a fresh story because, and I'll just read the modern English, he says, I don't know any first-rate tale that Chaucer, for all his little skill in rhyme and meter, has not, in language such as he can master, told long ago. Look, this Chaucer has just been banging on so much with all of his different tales and adapting and translating stories, it's kind of hard to think of a story that he hasn't already adapted uh, into English. For he has told of lovers of all kinds and more than Ovid mentions, or you'll find in his epistles, which are very old. Why should I tell what's already been told or uh, what should he tell in him since they been told, as the original um, says. I suppose what I want to um, suggest here is that we can see in a quotation like this that the tale's anxiety about questions of national identity is also bound up in an anxiety about forging a national literature from foreign, uh, from foreign models. And I, I want to really suggest that very similar ideas are at play in Agbabi's joined up writing. But to say a little bit more about joined writing, I think these ideas of literary tradition are really addressed from the very title of the, the work. When we reflect on this, this title, Joined Up Writing, it's referring at one level directly to the joined up letters of cursive script. Um, at one point, the narrator specifically refers to, you know, the process of writing in a cursive hand and, uh, and uh, teaching her, her child to form letters with little loops at the end that are dying to be kind of joined up and connected uh, to the, the next letter. But the, the phrase joined up writing is also a Babby's way, I think, of signaling her connection back in time to a manuscript uh, culture, to thinking back to a medieval manuscript culture where, where everything is written down and everything has to be recorded um, in, in, in writing. To, to survive to the present day. But the phrase joined up writing is also a, a kind of formal signal um, and, and Agbabi's way of, of reflecting what she has done in the form of the poem. 
this is a little complicated, but the, the form of the poem, it's actually a corona of sonnets. Um, so it's a sequence of, of sonnets, a corona, and in the last, sorry to use the triggering word corona in the, in the current climate, uh, but the, um, in, in this kind of group of, of sonnets, the last line of each stanza is echoed or, or linked, uh, concatenated with the first line of the next stanza. So it's a linked form, a joined up uh, form of, of writing as, as well. But I think also fundamentally, the idea of joined up writing speaks to uh, Babi's concern with the question of literary tradition, with, with writing in a tradition, finding your place within a literary uh, tradition. And the tale reflects on these questions of literary influence, on the process of both exerting and following literary influence. Agbabi has very cleverly replicated the form of the Canterbury Tales in which Chaucer speaks through his, his narrators by creating, in this instance, a fictional Zimbabwean poet called Memory Anesu Sargent, who chooses to narrate the poem from the perspective of the racist mother of Constance's crime writer husband, Ollie. In a very brilliant scene, Agbabi reworks the central forgery episode in the medieval original in a way that comments incisively on issues of literary tradition. I want to bring you to this moment. This is the moment in all of these versions of the tale, one of the recurring tropes is the figure of forgery. Um, the mother uh, of the English king that, that Constance marries uh, wants rid of her and resorts to forging letters from her, her son, the king, which is treason as, as well as a, a, a more human act of betrayal, um, in, that instruct his stewards to banish Constance and their, their newborn son uh, from the, the, the land. And this uh, scene has its equivalent in Agbabi's version, in which the mother, writing in the, the late 20th century, uh, forges a letter that she's going to write to send to Constance um, to let her think that her husband wants her to leave the country and is demanding that she leave the country and go back uh, to Zimbabwe. This is how it describes the moment of forgery. I knew his hand, this long flamboyant eye, the exact angle leaning to the right, the mild slope of his S, his loopless Y. How could I not? I taught my son to write his name when he was four. I trained his hand to copy mine, raised him for literature. In this moment, really, what um, the mother is describing is not just, of course, teaching her son to write, uh, but teaching him to write like her, uh, teaching him to write in a way that is identical to her own handwriting, which then subsequently enables her uh, to very easily forge his handwriting so that Constance, his own wife, will believe that it is written um, in his own hand. As you'll see really here, uh, that image of, of, of forgery, which has a long history in the narrative, is being transformed into what I see as quite a biting critique of a kind of toxic literary influence. The mother's desire to control her genealogical legacy in thwarting the marriage of Constance and Ollie is grafted onto her own misguided attempt to mold her son very literally as a writer in her own image, uh, not only teaching him to write, but raising him for literature, driving him into uh, this, this field and, and shaping him uh, as a, a writer. 
as she says very despondently at the start of the poem, after she has many years after she has betrayed Ollie and Constance and they have left, they've left England and, and gone to Zimbabwe uh, to, to live there with their, with their child and their family. Um, as she says very despondently at the start of the poem, my son's a writer, I, but he'll not write to me. Her focus on the mother-in-law, Agbabi exposes really the desolate future of a culture that refuses to welcome those who come from other places and perspectives, and that recoils in horror at the implications of mixed marriages and other acts of cultural intermingling. In the mother's attempts to control her son's choices in marriage and writing, we see the damaging effects of an obsessive desire to control and shape one's legacy. In contrast, in contrast to this closed and exclusionary view of national identity, ethnic identity and literary tradition, Agbabi finds in the open and accretive structure of Chaucer's storytelling competition, a, a sort of invitation and a model for a literary field that is expansive and welcoming, that is alert to new voices that can be read alongside foundational figures of literary history and who write back to them. In her opening observation that the, that sorry, Chaucer's tales were an unfinished business, Agbabi invites a modern audience to contemplate the past and present and possible futures in the image of the founding father alongside his many and diverse descendants. Thank you very much. Excellent, thank you, Brendan. That is fascinating. And uh, there are a number of questions coming in to me, not through the Q&A, interestingly, but um, from other other sources and other, mostly from PhDs who are listening in. Um, I Some of these questions are not well-formed, so forgive us, but we do have some interesting thoughts about uh, what you've been saying. And I will start with, um, let me get to the top of this here. Um, Orla's asking a question about whether Chaucer would have been aware of other countries and continents and what in that time his exposure to other people of other races would have been. Is he constructing some of this stuff or does he actually have experience of it? Yeah, um, I mean, ter terrific, terrific question. I mean, I suppose um, one of the reasons I wanted to illustrate the um, the tale with a with a map was really uh, to think about this this question of what what um, is being imagined in the, in the in the tale and in some ways it is a, a history of of people but it's also a history that's very embedded in in the kind of geography uh, of the world so obviously at the time we're talking about uh, the the. Chaucer would have been aware of the, the, the three kind of known continents, so uh, Europe, uh, Asia, and Africa. Um, and he, he would have been very aware. I mean, Chaucer was a very, by medieval English standards, a very well-traveled um, man and a well-traveled writer. So um, Chaucer was the, um, he was the son of a, of a vintner. He was the son of a wine merchant. Um, and it's long been kind of believed that, you know, that, that, for example, that he, he learned uh, to speak Italian or some Italian through interactions, family interactions with Italian wine merchants. And certainly there was a, an extensive trade 
when he years later became um, a kind of civil servant, uh, Chaucer also was pressed into service as a kind of diplomat. He went on diplomatic journeys through, um, we know that he went to France and Spain and, and particularly to Italy. Uh, he had an awful lot of, of interaction with, with Italy and went there a number of times uh, and, and certainly interacted extensively with the, the literature of that, um, that period. In terms of, of, of beyond that and beyond that, that, that scope, I think this is an area that's really, really interesting and important because it's something that is increasingly being challenged. I think a lot of scholars who, medievalists who work in say, critical race theory and, and are focusing on that have, have really started to, to kind of challenge some of the traditional assumptions about a kind of middle ages that was monocultural, that was kind of all white where nobody ever saw anybody um, <laughs> who was of, of a different kind of skin color or, or, or a different background. And it's, it, it's, it's kind of demonstrably not, not true. Um, and I think absolutely it's something that that is um, that, that was part of the, the experience. Having said that, I, I, to go back to that, that question, I do think it is a, a quite a constructed, um, I, I do think it's quite a constructed idea. And we see that very particularly in the way in particular in which I talked earlier about the King of Tars, uh, which really focuses on this question of, of skin color and, and is a very problematic uh, consideration of of you know relationship between ideas of religious identity, racial identity, and skin color, um, etc., and that is dim is diminished or less obvious in Chaucer's um, in Chaucer's version. And I think because he is thinking more about some of the the kind of um, cultural connections and and political affiliations between different peoples. I think that's where his particular um, interest lies. So I'm not sure I've answered that very well, um, but but certainly there, you know, he would have been aware of this kind of diversity. The other issue, sorry, where it comes up is in the trope of um, the monstrous birth, which comes up a lot, because when we look at a medieval map, like that map of the Hereford map of Mundy, we all know one of the famous things we know is around the edges of medieval map, we see the depictions of monstrous races and people whose mm -hmm. men whose heads do grow beneath their their shoulders, uh, as Shakespeare has it. Um, and and in at the heart of the, the constant story is this kind of motif of the deformed child. Um, mm -hmm. And in the Man of Law's Tale, it's just a false accusation. Um, there is, you know, there is no deformed child. Constance is accused of giving birth to a deformed child. But again, I think it's that idea of otherness, that, that this is somebody who's foreign, who's outside. And of course, you know, her child, there's going to be something wrong with it. It's going to suggest that she is in league with, with devils or that she's a fairy or an elf or, or something like that. Mm -hmm. So sorry, thank you. Excellent. Um... We do have a couple of questions from the chat, so I'm going to get to them first. I'm going to start with Aileen Douglas, who says, Brendan, do you think Agbabi's portrait of the racist mother-in-law is complicated by considerations of gender and female powerlessness? In script, the mother can train her son's hand, but beyond that, what power can she exert within a literary tradition? And thanks for a great talk, she says. Thanks, Aileen. That, that, that is exactly, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's a wonderful um, way of, of looking at it. Um, I think in that line, in that, that, that line where she says, I trained him to write, I, um, I raised him for, for literature. Um, she's absolutely kind of giving voice, or can certainly be seen to be giving voice to a kind of frustrated sense of, um, 
of literary ambition herself. You know, that, that this was something that she's interested in. This is something that she wants to do. It hasn't happened for her and that she has tried to, to shape that um, tradition. Where I think the, um, I, where I think Agbabi kind of complicates that um, and perhaps is not quite as sympathetic as that line of interpretation might um, align is in the way that she very emphatically highlights the kind of financial um, motivation uh, behind um, her pushing her son into, into literature. Not that there's anything wrong with making money for your, for your books or your writing, uh, but it, it kind of is quite insistently financial. She's constantly talking about that there's a, uh, she, she looks at a copy of one of his crime novels and it has his name, Oliver Robson, uh, in gold letters written in, in gold gold letters on the on the cover um, you can kind of visualize the kind of book um, and she says a fortune in that autograph you know she's she's kind of obsessed with this kind of image of the gold uh, the gold writing on the, on the book and she kind of thinks she's suspicious of Constance um, because of the fact that Constance um, she as she sees it Constance is just after his money she's just after the cachet um, and that this really belongs to to her and it is uh, it is something that is fascinating in this whole tradition because the constant stories historically cannot kind of be divided into versions in which the main focus is on male hostility to the female character to the heroine uh, where there are men who desire her who who um, in many cases seek to sort of seduce her and she refuses and then they come up with complicated plots and then this type of story where there are some of those male figures, but the main antagonists are female. And it's very much linked to questions about political power as well. I mean, when the, the, the Sultaness in Chaucer's version, um, when the Sultaness in Chaucer's version encounters uh, Constance and is horrified to discover that her, her son is going to marry a Christian and she is a Muslim, I mean, she exercises a, um, extraordinary plot to have everybody, all of her supporters feign uh, baptism, they pretend to become Christians, they welcome all of their guests, and once they're all in the locked room, they slaughter them all, and including her son, uh, so that she can take political power in the, in the kingdom. Uh, and funnily enough, I was teaching this, a different version of this, this text recently, and somebody pointed out how kind of almost ineffectual the the second mother-in-law the English mother-in-law is in the Chaucer versions because she comes up with this plan to kind of get what she wants but it's so transparent it's so easily disproved it's so easily set aside that you kind of wonder what did she expect to come of it it's kind of inefficacious it doesn't achieve anything she has Constance banished her son comes back says, where is my wife? Um, and, and she has to eventually confess and it kind of all falls apart. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, but I hope I've given you some sense of, of where Agbabi is fitting into that wider tradition. Sorry, I'm okay. on a lot, Maggie, sorry. <laughs> That's okay, no worries. It's, it's very interesting. Um, okay, a couple more things. We'll start with a, a simpler question maybe. Um, how, uh, how or has Agbabi spoken at all about the value of quote writing back um, versus breaking from the canon herself? Yeah, um, it's something that is is she's written she's written quite um, uh, 
well, she's written a bit about this. She, she wrote an article in Literature Compass um, a few years ago, really quite connected to what I mentioned earlier, the Global Chaucer's kind of initiative um, and kind of reflecting on, on, on her place within that tradition. And she talks a bit about joined up writing and, and some of her um, some of her other her other works. I think I mentioned at the start that in, a, in an interview that she did with Marion Turner, um, Chaucer's kind of most recent biographer a number of years ago, um, she uses this phrase, you know, Chaucer made me a poet. And it's kind of a fascinating phrase in a way because she, she really means, she really means almost linguistically, she means the light, she fell so, as she explains, she fell so in love with the sound of his poetry, with the way that he used language, that it kind of made her a poet. It just spoke to her on this level. And part of her motivation behind writing telling tales was actually, as she says, the fact that there were so many prose translations of Chaucer had appeared that kind of substituted the verse for, for a kind of prose, uh, not summaries, but prose translations of the, the tale. And she wanted to kind of imbue that with kind of modern, um, with modern techniques and styles. So each, each text, they're all, um, the, the poems are all in poetry, but they don't replicate at all the form of Chaucer's original poems. She, she plays very much with, with more recent forms and, and with modern um, forms. I'll give you, if you can, Indulge me on one last thing, or do you want to move on? No, um, go ahead. There's a, a wonderful poem um, in Telling Tales, which is, um, just thinking about that, which is called I Go Back to May 1967. And it is an adaptation of the, the, Clark's, the Clark's tale, the tale of, of um, Griselda. But of course, as, as some people will have picked up from the, the title, um, it is a... Um, adaptation of the the, the Sharon Owls uh, poem. I, I can't remember the exact year she says, what's the Sharon Owls poem? She says, I go back to May 19, I can't remember the year. Um, but in in Owls' poem, um, so looking at a kind of, I suppose, a white American uh, poem, uh, a poet, um, at Babi, basically, what she does is she takes Owls' poem, which is really about Owls looking at her parents imagining her, her, her mother and father meeting. They were a very kind of toxic uh, couple and, 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 and kind of abusive as she, she describes them. Um, and she imagines in that poem, uh, you know, going back to her parents as they meet and saying, don't do it, don't get married, don't, um, don't you'll, you'll torment each other, it'll be horrible, don't do it. Uh, but she says, but I don't because I want to live. Um, she wants, she acknowledges that there is this problematic point of origin and that, that she herself, but she herself grows out of that, out of that trauma and that, that, that suffering. And what Igbabi uh, like does in I Go Back to May 1967 is she changes it and she makes it about Nigeria uh, in 1967. And so she's linking it to the start of the Biafran War. And she's thinking about all of that, that kind of context. And she retells Chaucer's Clark's tale from the perspective of the children of, of the story. So she's kind of reading back through a, a white American poet, um, reading back through to a, a white British poet and linking in all of these uh, questions about Nigeria and Nigerian politics in the 1960s. So that, I think that gives you a good sense of the way that she kind of writes back to these, these issues.
It does. It, it, it kind of shows her writing back as a, a vehicle for keeping Chaucer alive, which kind of leads to Bernice's loaded question, which I've, mm -hmm. I've saved for last a little bit here, <laughs> um, which I'm afraid you probably couldn't avoid answering. Um, Bernice says wonderful stuff, Brendan. Um, and I should also mention Alice Jorgensen would like to thank you for a great talk. But here's the last question. Um, why do you think Chaucer has become a kind of political issue in the kind of culture war, to use a very loaded term, such as the one currently underway in UK academia? Um, and I think a little bit of what you're speaking to with Agbabi's um, relevance or, or bringing Chaucer into relevance might explain why so many people are a little bit up in arms about this or or exploding this and uh, maybe you could address Bernice's yeah. question that way. Absolutely Bernice and thank you it, it is a it is a great question and I kind of absolutely it's a difficult question and one that I but one that I've kind of brought on myself uh, to answer so I, I will try my best to answer. I think I suppose one of the the things I mentioned at the start of the the, the paper that that really troubled me and it troubled me um, in terms of the, the situation at Leicester that we saw with um, redundancies in, in the field was the way it kind of sparked or inspired um, a, a series of ill thought out think pieces um, at best uh, that really tried to say, well, look, what's happening now is a, a zero sum game. Um, there is a war. Uh, there is tradition, there are the, the greats, the titans of English literature, and there are um, the new voices um, that are being ushered in and are going to displace all of these, and that, that it's a kind of cancellation. And that is just so profoundly unhelpful. It is not, it is not welcome. I, I think it's not welcomed by, by uh, medievalists. I don't think it's welcomed or should be welcomed by anyone, if you, whether you work on medieval literature or 21st century literature or post-colonial literature, whatever it might be, because it, 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 it creates a false dichotomy. It, it pits people against each other in, in ways that they don't, they don't have to be. And it's one of the reasons why I think I, I started by mentioning just the range and diversity of for example, our cultures of retelling course, but also of this seminar series, just the fact that that it's a core principle of what you all are doing, as I understand it, as um, organizers, that you're inviting everyone in. You issue a call for papers, you want to hear from people from whatever period they're in, so that we all kind of can participate in that um, wider, um, wider kind of tradition. And I think one of the misperceptions sometimes about Chaucer, and it's picked up to some extent, arguably in, in um, joined up writing, uh, but one of the misperceptions about Chaucer is that because he is the first person buried in what became Poet's Corner, uh, because he is called the father of English poetry, that I, I suppose that he is a, a, a titan figure who kind of exerts and wants to exert this long, long shadow uh, over everyone, where everyone has to kind of bow down um, and, and kind of worship at the shrine of Geoffrey Chaucer. But the whole point of the Canterbury Tales, as I understand it, is really to see the way stories are set in motion by other stories and, and that one person tells a story and then another person responds to that. And, and he has, of course, because people are finite and mortal, he has to find a way to wrap all of that up um, in his own life. But I don't think he ever envisaged a model of, as I mentioned with the quotation I showed, a model of literary tradition that would have an, 
a kind of clear start point and a clear end point, and that we'd be done after a certain point. I think he imagined that he was kind of getting the ball rolling on certain things and that it would continue to, to, to grow and develop um, and, and that there would be new voices coming in all the time, kind of, kind of changing it. So I think that's what like Babi finds in Chaucer. She finds a kind of invitation into a, a field that, that she thinks, and I think she thinks Chaucer thinks, um, is kind of open and accretive and welcoming. And that, that, that one story, one voice should generate another, should generate another response. I think that's what I'm trying to get at with this, with this paper. Excellent. That's a wonderful place to stop. Um, we've gone over a little bit in time. I'm very sorry to everyone who is listening, but I, I, I wish I could ask a few more questions here. Uh, thank you, Brendan, so very much for speaking with us today. And thanks everyone who joined us all. And um, I hate to cut this so short so quickly, but we do try to keep within the time frame. So hope you all have uh, a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks so much. And join us next time um, in the chat. You can see some details. Thanks now. Thank Bye-bye. Thanks all. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.